2: I've been thinking about it a lot recently. I mean, it's hard not to, as it's been in the news nearly constantly lately, especially after the Biden administration announced its student loan forgiveness program. But even more, I've been thinking about it as I've begun working on the book project I call A Good History of Shit Jobs, in which I examine the US economy since the 1970s and explore how it is that our economy has become so full of low-paying, Dead-end crap jobs. The more I've looked into this history, the more I became interested in an important question. How did elected officials, especially Democrats, become so obsessed with college education as the answer to important social problems? As Christina Viviana Groger points out in her book, The Education Trap, the focus on education as a solution to inequality goes right back to the beginning of the 20th century, if not before. But what about this focus on college, on college education? It's a focus you really see intensified amongst Democrats in the 1990s and in this century. It's a line of thinking that runs through figures like Robert Reich and then President Clinton and Vice President Gore and eventually Senator and President Obama, who was constantly holding up colleges as an answer to inequality. But this emphasis betrayed the truth on the ground. By 2005 or so, wages for college graduates began to stagnate and decline. Colleges were turning out increasing numbers of college graduates, but the economy wasn't producing increasing numbers of good jobs. So what happens when supply outpaces demand? And meanwhile, individuals were getting loaded up with massive amounts of debt. The federal student loan portfolio currently totals more than $1.6 trillion owed by about 43 million borrowers. And as Tressie McMillan Cotton has shown in her book, Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy, this debt has unequally affected black people and other minorities, the poor and the already disadvantaged but on a deeper level we need to ask where did our student loan system itself come from how did we end up with this world where the way to deal with secondary and post-secondary education was to load individuals up with debt now isn't it wonderful when you can ask a question like that and someone's got an answer for you in this episode i interview elizabeth tandy Schirmer, an associate professor of history at loyola university chicago known to her friends as ellie about her recent book, Indentured Students, how government guaranteed loans left a generation drowning in college debt. Shermer's story, like any good historians, goes back to the 19th century. She reminds or teaches us that college education was always expensive for families and that the tension between debt and charity in paying for college goes at least back to the 1920s. She shows us how the federal loan system emerged in the 1960s but also how it arose from earlier developments such as the GI Bill. She also points out that this system often failed women and racial and ethnic minorities. And in the end, she shows us how our world of individuals drowning in college debt arose from a long series of decisions, decisions that prioritize private profit and risk over public benefit. I hope you enjoy this chat with Ellie. I truly had a lot of fun with her. Get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
0: Absolutely. And just so your, your um, audience knows, in terms of radical honesty, we've known each other for years, which is why you know my real name, as opposed to my crazy long Southern name that I was born with and published underneath, Elizabeth Annie Shermer. And in fact, <laughs> you are recording this from the state I was raised in, although I was raised in the Northern part of Virginia and you were raised, you were living in the Southern part of Virginia.
2: Did you go to undergrad in California? Or no. wh- What was U- your UVA, undergrad
0: University of Virginia.
2: All right. All right. Yeah. I, don't, I one of those to that. Yeah.
0: Have... It's okay. It's okay. And
2: then you went out to California. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true.
0: Well, I mean, look, I mean, my advisor in California was Nelson Lichtenstein, who had been at UVA, and I we did not actually overlap, but his grad students were still there, and they huh. were like, if you're interested in this stuff, capitalism, you know... Person, labor person, you got to go work with is this Nelson Liechtenstein guy, and it turned out Santa Barbara was a great place to be doing interested in capitalism and policy. So that's how I ended up there.
2: That's that's interesting. I didn't know that story. Yeah. Uh, so let's start. Let's start with the basics. If if you find yourself talking to people about indentured students, what do you say it's about, and what were you trying to do with the book?
0: Oh my gosh, um, I tell them. Oh, actually, my my joke is I always say is that spoiler alert it doesn't end well for 45 million of us <laughs> and, and indeed <laughs> indeed i actually dedicated it dedicated the book to the 45 million of us drowning in debt and the reason i wanted to do it and I'll t- if you don't mind i'll tell you a little bit the story about how i actually got to the project um yeah was I, no that yeah. was my next
2: question so go yeah for uh,
0: how i got there was i um I, had, I, You know, you and I are both in the history of capitalism circles, and I, I had written this book on the Sun Belt. And one of the things that I discovered that was so important for convincing um, big businesses like Motorola and GE to move into these little tiny towns like Atlanta huh. and Phoenix was they needed the education infrastructure. And so even though a lot of people tell this story about public universities being recently privatized, being more recently dependent on private money, Actually, it was a lot of private money that built places like Arizona State University In ASU's case. Mm-hmm. This really tiny little teacher's college got a big engineering um, department dumped on them with a lot of GE and Motorola money. As a matter of fact, GE actually op- um, ha- was taking over half of the office space for the electrical engineering wow. program, yeah. And so, what I was working on is a project I'm actually back to now, which was called the Business of Education. That was trying to blow up this idea that we'd ever had this public and private, um, uh, ac- you know, academic system that it was always like so much of American social welfare commingled.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's a big project. It goes to many different campuses to show that it goes from the founding to the present. And then my father got sick Um, and uh, my life changed. Um, And I was cleaning out his house because he needed to be moved into a facility. Um, And I found my student loan records that I had signed when I was 17 years old. And I realized. That we didn't know anything about this industry, we didn't know anything about these guaranteed loan programs. No one mentions when they celebrate the 1965 Higher Education Act that that is when the first real loan program um, started. And indeed, those people during the moratorium who've often still being having to pay money on their federal loans, those are those original guaranteed loans. And so I sat there and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to keep my job, how am I going to move forward, how am I going to care for my father. And this seemed like a more manageable project. It's a totally different research Mm -hmm. base. You know, I looked at, I did it. It's really a story of political intransigence and the intentional consequences that rather than fund higher education to keep costs down for ordinary people, to provide the research and technology that the public needs, the many uses of the university that instead they were going to create on purpose a student loan industry. And they looked to the federal mortgage program of the 30s to do that, hmm. to create, a, a, in the 30s, the guarantee on the federal mortgage program is the guarantee that bankers will be repaid. The guarantee on the um, student loans is that originally the bankers who made those loans would be repaid by the federal government. And the intention hmm. was to create an industry where there was not one. So that's yeah, how I came it's, here. It's a
2: fascinating story. Yeah. It's a little
0: depressing. I got to um, say, when I, when I first started working on it, I would check because it never worked well for the American people. I would, I would check my balance all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <It's> just... <laughs> yes. Are you, are you heading towards forgiveness? Where are you at with your okay, loans? So can we talk about that? <laughs> we can
0: totally talk about that. Um, as a matter of fact, I prefer cancellation because none of us yeah. did anything wrong that we need to be forgiven for to go to college at all. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, the whole point is, why does the federal government start playing around with these tuition assistance programs? They need young people to go to college, both Mm -hmm. to keep them out of competition for jobs, but also to get the training for later was always a part of the calculus. Um, Mm -hmm. And in my case, you know, it's true. I work at a private Nonprofit university, Mm. but I still qualify for public sector loan forgiveness, the PSLF program. But there are a lot of people who are working, for example, in the medical industry. If they're not working for a nonprofit hospital, their their employer technically doesn't qualify, even though all of us recognize that as essential work. And for me, I think the pandemic Mm -hmm. has really shown how much essential work there is that is should be worthy of these PSLF programs. But to answer your question, I filed. Um, the paperwork in the beginning of this month to show that I have made all of those qualified payments. I've also actually, I've been told I've been, to due a, um, do a reimbursement for all that I paid. Um, hmm. And I haven't seen it yet. So we shall see.
2: Well, good luck. I'm about to start the process myself, but I, one of my good friends has been going through it for months now and it is itself can be a real headache so good luck with that oh they lost sure.
0: they lost my first two months or my first two years of payments but they have never met anyone who keeps as detailed a spreadsheet and records as I, do.
2: <laughs> I wish that was true of me too I can believe it of you I can believe it I <laughs> so when you know when I think when most people talk about sc- student loan debt they're mostly focusing on the period from the 90s to the present and yes. some people talk about the earlier period Um, of the sixties and seventies, but you start like any good historian of like pushing us further back even further going to like, you know, very much the 19th century, but even looking at moments of like the founding. So. You know, how does looking back at the roots of American higher education help us understand the history that you want to tell?
0: For me, it was really important to go back to the beginning to get through, the, get rid of this idea that we there had ever been a moment in this country's past where we had actually devoted the money for what became this very basic need. And I would also argue that the agricultural colleges from the Land Grant Act, um, agriculture and mechanical colleges from them, we're also supposed to be about national need for an industrializing nation. Right. And yet, if you look very closely at the land grant app, and here I'm going to tell your readers to go take a look, or listeners, excuse me, to go take at the Land Grab Universities Project, which does the digital mapping to show exactly where the land was seized for a lot of those endowments, um, Is but it's just endowments. There's no guarantee that those um, that those state legislators were actually going to fund those institutions to actually keep them open, let alone to expand to meet ever-increasing demand in the Gilded Age and the Progressive yeah. Era. And I think the other thing mm-hmm. to me that was really important is to see that we've had these lending programs that were campus-based. And the reason the earliest ones were from campus, we reported that tradition from Europe. But the, the reason is, is because This is a terrible financial product. I'm going to give you a loan for something that I cannot repossess. And even if I could take one of your many degrees, Lee, and sell it to someone else, that would rob you of the credentials that you need to compete for the well-paying work (laughs) to pay me back. It's just an absolute nightmare. So is there any wonder that you didn't actually have an industry until the federal government came in with a guarantee on a financial product that banks really didn't want to touch?
2: Yep. It really is fascinating. I mean, I this I, I won't stretch out this analogy for too long, but there's some something to be said for like the role the federal government played in like the nuclear industry that there's yeah. some things like industry just doesn't want to touch without the federal government coming in and saying no, we'll make it safe for you, basically, you know, and then, we're like, all right, all right, all right. all well, we'll come in then. It, well, it's fascinating. And
0: to me, like, that, what's really important about that is is something, um, I did it in, uh, in one of my essays for Reviews in American History, is that, you know, we, there's a tendency that historians and other, and social scientists have wanted to say that the financialization of the economy is really like a post-70s thing. But man, mm-hmm. the federal government has been dabbling in a lot of tricky financing forever. And so I think what I'm yeah hoping besides i do want to sh- to show the public the origins of a po- uh, of the student loan industry that touches so many lives in this country but also to get us all thinking about that when we talk about for example eras like the new deal the 1930s and we talk about the white working class getting a new deal actually they got a lot of creative financing they got a lot mm-hmm. of creative financing with a federal guarantee for bankers to finance mm-hmm. a middle class, a white middle class lifestyle at home, and we got to sit with that and think about that as a as one of those continuities in history.
2: Hmm. I like that. I thought I saw. So I mean, I also just like there was a lot of I've looked at the history of higher ed often for various reasons, including because I teach it sometimes. But I thought you were drawing new things out of uh, different decades. So for I didn't really think about before about how important the 20s were for higher Mm -hmm. ed because you know there's affluence there's money a lot of more people are starting to go to school but right away you get this tension between debt and like charity or handouts absolutely. or however we're going to talk about this, right? And so you had her, there, some beautiful stuff about Herbert Hoover, uh, who I love dearly, pushing <laughs> loans, uh, you know? And so to, how does this, I mean, this seems like a very American tension that always plays out, but tell us a bit about this, you know, debt versus charity thing. Oh,
0: absolutely. And, and especially since, you know, some of the early, a lot of what we have in the, at the federal in the federal programs is all modeled off the of things that campuses were do, doing. So they used to call these, What we would now call financial aid, but it's really tuition assistance, right, Um, is they would actually call it the charity funds for those poor but talented students. And that's always been attention. Do we want to help the poor students or do we reserve that money for the talented students? And there's also been a really important idea that you need this education can't be free, that that would be somehow Mm -hmm. un-American of it. And I think when you see that with Hoover, when he's like, they have all those fancy cars, and if you think about him making yeah, yeah. his argument <laughs> in the 1920s, when you can buy things on right. credit and it's becoming more, and he's like, they can pay, you know, sort of later. And even, even I think, um, because actually a, f- a dear friend of mine, um, he's a historian too, said, he's like, Ellie, you do realize that you have just skewered one of the most beloved pieces of legislation in American history, the GI Bill. But the very mm. idea that they had already done the labor to earn this education, right, through the GI Bill. But then some of the leading liberals in Congress at the time, including Claude Pepper, were saying, we got to keep these subsistence payments low. We don't want these people just drifting and just hanging out in college. And I was like, later, that generation would be known as the greatest generation but at the time there is this sense that we don't want them loafing in college on the taxpayer's doles like yeah, yeah. from some of our leading liberals at that moment in time and i think it really just gives us a sense about this idea that americans are expected to work for their basic rights
1: mhm
2: um you also show i mean i loved the the new deal chapter was great i thought and the um <laughs> the the work on I mean, we think of work study as this, um, you know, this education thing. But you, the, w- w- something came out in your account is that it was as much about the job market sucking yeah. and attempts to deal with like, like that as it was about, you know, as a kind of education act. So, I mean... Oh, tell us a bit about the history of work-study and, and oh. how they thought of it at that time.
0: Oh, thanks. I, I, I'm, I, again, this is one of those things that they're actually pulling from, from a campus experiment. So we campus is offering these sort of ideas that you can work part-time so that you can afford to study. And that's the reason the New Dealers are like, we're not going to bail out these college universities, right? But what we'll do mm-hmm. is we'll have this work-study program. And the main calculus is we want to get these young people out of competition for jobs. We do not want them competing with those from the ages of 25. And you think about it, 65, because work-study is the same year as they pass social security, right? We want to have, we don't want them in that main component. The other part of it is like, there is conversations amongst the new dealers, which would continue as we get closer and closer to World War II. The nation's labor pool is not adequate particularly as they're thinking about what it will take to prepare for war. We need a better trained labor pool. So as much Mm -hmm. as people like to wring their hands right now as about how education is about a job, it doesn't change the fact that really what's going on here is that it has always been that way from the point of view of the federal government. And just to jump a little bit forward, you know, to the 1960s, one of the reasons that the Johnson administration is so keen to have higher education is that they, they that seems like an easier way to eventually get um, to um, addressing civil rights, long term racial inequities. They don't quite have gender inequities on their mind in the Johnson administration is that mm-hmm. we're not going to try and force employers to pay people equally, even though that should be doing it on the law but what we'll do is we'll make sure that we can have that equal opportunity to go to college and that should make up for the historic disparities in what people are paying. So as opposed to so many academics who are so upset, is like, when did college become about a job? You all know, from a lot of people's perspective, it always has been.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: but that being said, can I say one thing though? In terms of, I, I will yeah. say one thing about it is that, but a lot of the folks who were excited to go to college, is true, a lot of them had, Job concerns on their minds, including those GIs and including those in work study. But there's many examples of ordinary people with the chance to study, um, including mm-hmm. the work study program, including the GI. They were just excited to finally have a chance to discover and enjoy the liberal arts. That they appreciated that this was supposed to be not just to help with the eight hours for what you eight hours that you work. It was supposed to help you better enjoy that eight hours you were supposed to have for what you will. So it's the famous, since we're getting close to Labor Day, the famous eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what you will. A recognition mm-hmm. about the importance of the higher education for that as well.
2: Mm hmm. No, it, it's well put. Um. So uh, what, another thing I loved about these early chapters is, you know, you think like the federal government getting involved in higher education and like maybe bringing some money into it colleges and professors and ministers you're just gonna layer to love this right but you repeatedly show that actually they're pretty worried uh, they're not sure they actually want the federal government around so yeah tell us about forms of pushback during this period not oh. just amongst conservatives mind you but like just pushback from all kinds of folks
0: well it's that that whole question of federal power right um, and in mm-hmm. the, in the, in, the, in, the, in the minds of academics it is that academic freedom, it is that institutional autonomy and the, the fear of what the federal um, government being dictates. So, you know, the question about, like, why was there not a big bailout for college and universities? And so the construction programs that some of your listeners might know about, um, those construction programs, that was only open to public college and universities because it was a concern of federal money, go- taxpayer money, federal money going to private institutions, even though they we're a nonprofit. But also, um that you the college universities they had to apply for them and they were matching and that's really important there isn't actually the coercion and the same with work study there was no hmm. diktat, dictate, dictation, or dictate, di- sorry, diktat that um, a college or university participate in work study. Now, it is true that if you don't offer it, and there's a bunch of students who are going to apply to the other, the police down, you know, in a, in a, yeah. Yeah, who, who does offer it. So there is that aspect of it, but there's still so much authority that e- what the works, how work study worked was, I'll tell you what, you give those students jobs and the federal government will pay them for it. But you get to decide within the general parameters about how much students were supposed to work and how much you're supposed to pay, but you they got to set everything. Mm-hmm. The colleges and universities got to set up to it. So it was this fear of having all of this control. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things. It, it's just, to me, it's also one of those longstanding tendencies in American history that there is this concern about federal control leaving aside the segregated schools which are deeply Mm -hmm. afraid and cite the question of states rights and that is a historic thing with education it was supposed to be left to local state and then private voluntary associations and that's the fear with the federal government
2: Mm -hmm.
0: which never really tried so you already
2: (laughs) you uh you you kind of flag this earlier but you know the gi bill is one of the most beloved uh you know acts of government in u.s history and so you had to go right and stab it in the heart uh for all of us suzanne uh, so, metler you
0: know- <laughs> did it before me i just want to point that out there okay. the suzanne metler did it before me <laughs>
2: Uh, So what do you think standard accounts of the GI Bill miss or or get wrong about the actual history as it happened?
0: Well, I think part of it is that they miss that it was just such a bitter, bitter fight on all aspects of it. And Mm -hmm. questions of keeping the South segregated, keeping the races unequal. Actually, of course, the fact that many women um, GIs were also excluded as well. That is just not a part of the story. And I think also there is this idea that, you know, the celebration of so many veterans getting to go to college, well, the actual number is 2.2 out of 11 million. That's actually what the number is. And and that's not as as big a percentage as you would think. It's still important. But I think, yeah, I think the other aspect of it too is, and this is important, is that the memory of those veterans who had the opportunity to go to college, and I think this speaks to this importance about that even though a lot of these federal policies and the GI bill also, it was intended to keep the veterans out out of competition for jobs. There's real fear Mm -hmm. when they're designing this program that you would have another economic downturn like after world war one. And the fear is veterans selling um, apples on the street corner. They invoke that image Um, Mm -hmm. that that's exactly a part of it, but it doesn't change the fact that so many veterans really, really valued this opportunity and those memories of not being not getting their subsistence checks on time, those memories of mm-hmm. the absolutely terrible living conditions. Because what actually happened again with the GI Bill, no, no federal appointee is forcing a college or university to take veterans to participate in the GI Bill. But all mm-hmm. of a sudden you have this guarantee of tuition revenue. You sure as heck is gonna take that. And then right. but they're greatly accept, accept, accepting far more mi- many veterans and also keeping up with the civilians as well. And the c- campuses just cannot accommodate that. So, I mean, the image is the image, I think, of the GI Bill has to be actually of overcrowded classrooms and really terrible yeah, yeah. living conditions like military surplus, which I think mm-hmm. makes the 2.2 million veterans who were able to take advantage of it. I think it makes all the more impressive. It really, really does. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah. And another thing that I thought you did a great job pointing out is that because of the way the rates were set uh, in the GI bill, that a lot of universities took the opportunity to jack up uh, their tuition and other yeah. uh, fees. So it actually made it like less accessible to other folks who, Absolutely. you know, didn't get the the stipend.
0: And I think the That's sad really the sad part about that is like it's this question of design, you know, is that. There Mm -hmm. was not going to be federal money uh, and they could not guarantee that states would provide the money to expand the universities to not only meet the needs of GIs, but the prediction that many more Americans, that the country needed many more people to get a college education, um, that that was not going to happen. And so the idea is we'll do it through the tuition revenue. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of those. This is this is a great example of the unintended consequences, not being able to consider just how much tuition would increase because tuition increased a lot during the GI Bill. And it's also, sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head, a remarkable percentage in the 1950s to the point where I uh, recently elected JFK is warning Congress. I believe the percentage is actually 90%, but he makes this very Mm. dramatic point that if the average cost of college is about $7,000 a year at the time, and that is that is more than half of what the um, about of well, them what most families take home, and this is in a moment where families are likely to be larger than they are today. That you can't most yeah. American families cannot afford to um, to send their kids, and I think that's so helpful because. When you just look back at the numbers about what tuition costs were, which leans out you're not thinking about the money not you're not making while you're not working, yeah. it's really hard to, for people to wrap their heads around. But if most um, Americans are making less than $15,000 a year families, it puts mm-hmm. that all into perspective.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I felt like at some points the book you really got into like full-on debunker mode which of course warms my heart because i act i do i go that route too uh but you know this chapter titled the fizzled response to sputnik and it definitely is a kind of standard narrative in u.s higher ed history that like all right the soviets put up sputnik and the u.s responded by ramping up higher ed and, you know, and it was beautiful. And we got a bunch of engineers and scientists out of it. So, so tell listeners how the response to Sputnik actually fizzled. Tell Congress
0: spent almost a year fighting over it. That's what they did. And I, I do think that I, I, another another thing I hope people take away. I am so friggin tired. Someone who grew up in the D.C. area of everyone saying partisanship and congressional stalemates started in the 90s no it did not the only time where we actually had landmark legislation sailing through congress 30s and the 60s Mm. when one party controlled all three branches of government and had super majorities in congress that's how that actually happened you guys that's what happened yeah and i just it just drives me crazy and it's true the parties are resorting themselves so it's not as easy to see but so yes they spent almost a year fighting and what they ended up with was a temporary bill. It was just a temporary bill. And the, the one that I hate is at the very last minute, at the very last minute, they changed an undergraduate scholarship program, which would not have been enough to cover um, the full cost of tuition um, at the time at, at any with the exception of a few that were tuition free, like the University of California at the time would not have been enough to cover that. They changed that to a loan program. And I always think about that as Mm -hmm. really opening up this Pandora's box. But I think my favorite part about that chapter is actually the end where I get into the rollout of it. And I was like, they're basically shoving banking duties onto the, it's then the Office of Education, which had until then just collected statistics because they didn't really have much input with Mm -hmm. the GI Bill or work study. And they're sitting on orange grapes trying to figure out... (laughs) how to run a loan program (laughs) and discovering pretty darn quick that what was supposed to be self perpetuating. The idea was, is that the student would borrow the student would borrow. um, They would start having to pay back after graduation. They would pay back with their interest. Their interest would make the loan program grow so that it could grow to accommodate more students. It never worked, especially since Mm. one of the biggest fights has actually always been happening in these tuition assistance programs is who deserves some you want to call it forgiveness fine um who deserves some kind of cancellation the expectation that teachers would have it at the time and it just mm-hmm. it, mm. it didn't work and it, it became pretty quick that this was um not going to be self-perpetuating like they
2: thought mhm so in the mid 60s then i mean things start moving pretty quick in a lot of ways um the The federal government really did start getting involved in loans in new ways, as as you already kind of flagged earlier. So, um, the you know, when it comes to like f- the federally guaranteed part, tell us a bit. I mean, like, why did that come to be at that moment, and you know, uh, what what did it look like initially?
0: Well, there's a there's a couple of reasons why it's actually that per- that perfect moment. You know people paying long term for things for example like houses over time have become more common right Um, and the other Mm -hmm. thing too is that in the in the mid 60s remember these Congress is basically for the most part white men right whether within Mm -hmm. whether probably that's what we're talking about and these are the folks who could look at the then um, federal mortgage program and consider it an amazing success. In the 1930s, instead of going down the road of public housing like the United, the United Kingdom did, what we did was instead we had this guaranteed mortgage. We created this mortgage industry where there really hadn't been one. I mean, there's some, there some mortgage work um, done earlier, um, but that's what we're going to do. And I know, even though you and I know, and now your listeners know you can repossess a house and sell it to someone else, but you can't do that with a student degree. That is what we'll use. They are, they are literally using that as their model. Hmm. And a part of that is in the context of the Great Society, which is this is a in the war on poverty, a lot of spending, a lot of spending, mm-hmm. a lot of programs. There's also a war on Vietnam. This seems like a cheaper way. And it might be cheaper mm-hmm. for the federal government, although later it would be actually be shown that this approach cost the federal government more <laughs> because of how they hmm. did the bookkeeping than the direct loans in the 1990s, um, this seemed a cheaper way to get more people going to college. That's literally what the calculus was. And I think one of the most important parts about that, as I flagged it before, this is white men looking at a mortgage program that seemed a success. This is before we have the amazing work that has really shown how the mortgage program um, worsened yeah. racial and gender Um, inequalities. Gender, of course, because women couldn't really own homes on their their own. And not realizing that because those same inequities would be perpetuated by the student loan program. Even though the way Mm -hmm. that I talk about it is a lot of these experiments in the 60s, there's a lot of colorblind run going on there. So this idea that We're trying to do something for racial inequity. And they don't really have women on their mind. It's in the early 70s. And it's because women put it there. Um, We don't really. That's (laughs) that's what we're going to do. But you know what? What we'll do is the loan program was for those white middle income Americans who may not be able to do it. The revival of the work study program. Again, one of those things caught by that political stalemate that's not supposed to exist yet um, in the 1930s. But we're going to revive the work study that's supposed to be for students of color, similar with the campus grade. But you know what? They leave the campuses in charge. It's the financial aid administrators Mm. who get to decide. Admissions decides who's invited. Financial aid officers decide who gets that money. And there has been a problem Mm -hmm. where for financial aid officers, tuition assistance has often been used um, as a set of time to buy brains and brawn. Athletes Uh and smart students... (laughs) Build your alumni base, make sure you got the, t- the talent, you know, to compete, to bring yeah, you know, yeah, those ticket yeah. sales in. And it's, it's, you can, you can see it from, from, um, from the get go. And the key thing was, we're going to guarantee bankers repayment. And it's, you, that's, I mm-hmm. think it's like one of the things I was very lucky enough to get to a, a session with the architect of the Australian loan program. And huh. Yeah, it's amazing. It's one of the most incredible um, cool. nights of my life. This is also great too. That and that that first time we met at the <laughs> OEH and, and shared a, a um a, a van a van home, or van to the airport. Excuse me. Was um and they the, the Australian loan loan program is called the Higher Education Contribution. And the idea is you're contributing just to the education as opposed to in the United States, the guaranteed student loan program, the guarantee was for the bankers. But you and so many have and still do assume the guarantee was for students. There was no guarantee that students would get the loan that they that the financial aid officers had decided for them. And also there was Mm -hmm. no guarantee that those students would get the loans for the tuition revenue that schools have historically depended on.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. hmm
2: I want to talk to a bit more about inequities um, in a second. But before we get there... There's like the the Higher um, Education Act gets reauthorized in 1972. It's the most important and, one. Well, at the same time. Yeah, and and at the same time as Title IX, and uh, you know, which is much more famous in a, in a in a sense. But why was that? Why was that reauthorization so important in this history?
0: Sure, and Title IX, it's the two. Or excuse me. 1972 and it's funny because a lot of people don't realize it was a part of the reauthorization and that's like one of those weird things about american lawmaking policy you're like what is this we just the textbooks it's just passed well most of the post new deal legislation has to come up every couple of years um for reauthorization from some perspective it's a way to kill the bill and trim it others from these idea the expand upon it It all depends and you you have to really understand this is a post um New Deal phenomenon in terms of thinking about this because that's why Social Security does not come up for reauthorization, which also means that's why Medicare and Medicaid don't because those are just amendments to Social Security. And so there's a okay. lot of this sort mm-hmm. of reaction against just the broad um, changes made in the 1930s for the have this this reauthorization process. So 72, reauthorization. And you have a lot of incredible um, push For the what is Title IX, and I always tell people Title IX was always more about women in sports, Um, and one of the big impetus for for it from its supporters um, was the idea that if for some reason the Equal Rights Amendment did not pass, because they seventy two, they think it's going to sail through, but just in case. We want this to guarantee this for this education that is, again, supposed to be that avenue for equal opportunities on the jar market. And of course, we all know what actually happened is the ERA did not pass. Although your current state, my former home state, just recently ratified it. So watch this space to see what happens. Um, and then <laughs> the other thing that happens in 72 is Claiborne Pell pushes for the grants that are now named after him. And these are really important. The the Pell Grants, because they come directly from the federal government. And it's a very complicated scheme based on how much your family earns. But the whole point was to get around those admissions officers, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole and the campuses and things like that, that you would have this basic kind of amount. But I always think the most important things about it in the long run, I know Pell Grants are important, and we do understand that Title IX is important too. But it is the creation... Well, one is making for-profit schools eligible for these civilian tuition assistance programs because this starts mm-hmm. to open up the doors to our now friends the university of phoenix and indeed you and i are mm-hmm. talking when they've just had yet another um by administration official has decided to forgive the duck take it out by one of these predatory for profits in the online space but this yeah. is a really critical moment and the second is of course the creation of sally Mae literally and openly modeled off of Fannie Mae because there had bankers participation in the student loan program had been laggard, even though they had been Mm -hmm. guaranteed a profit, they had been guaranteed repayment, but this was going to make it easier to buy and sell student debt. And Mm -hmm. you, the key aspect of this is how it can really help build an industry is that if in your portfolio of these really terrible financial products, very risky, you have a chunk that are guaranteed repayment by the federal government. Maybe you start offering others that don't have that guarantee, but that might even be more profitable, um, and that fits a new need from students and parents because parents do not yet have the parent loan program it's established in the eighties, and there's limits about how much students can borrow, right? And so, mm-hmm. but it is not keep at all keeping um, pace with. The soaring costs of tuition in the seventies, as there's less spending on higher education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and there we go. So it's all,
2: it, it already it already seems pretty obvious in your seventies ch- chapter and you know thereabouts that, as you kind of said earlier, that this is mostly benefiting uh, white dudes. And, uh, you know, and and most, you know, and and when not white dudes, white women, um, but it's not helping the people who need help the most. And this is pretty apparent in the numbers. So were leaders simply not taking this into account? Was it not like was it not in the public yet that this was a problem or? Yeah, I mean, like, what is the disconnect between the leadership and and this reality?
0: Well, I think that I mean, in in some cases, one of the reasons it is that both the Nixon administration had a different kind of version of the Pell Grant that they were pushing, but both Pell Nixon administration are interested in some kind of bait, something like approximating a basic grant. Is there is a recognition? that, you know, we're still having a lag in terms of people of color. And, and their minds are really focused on Black men at this time. In time, It's, a, it's the 60s and 70s. Yeah. They don't see a much more, uh, we now know a much more um, broader American public, much more diverse American public. But they're not really just w- willing to talk about it openly, right? It's this, this entire colorblind language. But that's where I think it's really, really important that those who were able to go to college, those um, who became scholars of color, very important, not only... They did that research and they continue to talk about it. And I think that that has been so important in much of the conversation about student debt, including in the mainstream media, is about Mm -hmm. how unequally it is felt. And that is a tribute, not only the researchers who took up that mantle and did that work, but the activists who took it and harnessed it and made it a part of conversation. Mm -hmm. And And actually, I would include that actually in some of our politicians who are pushing for Really progressive stances, for example, college for all, for cancellation. Really, I mean, Ayanna Presley is just like, look, um, this is about <laughs> racial and gender inequities. We're not gonna, we're not, not gonna ch- pretend that it isn't. And that is a real credit mm-hmm. to it, as opposed to all these colorblind innuendos. One of my favorite, by the way, in the um, in the sixty-five Higher Education Act is they have this money set aside for developing institutions, which was a code word what we now call historically black college universities, a recognition Mm -hmm. that they Mm -hmm. were not going to be able to to guarantee a year after the Civil Rights Act that there would be equal admissions at these college universities, especially since that was done by the courts. And my alma mater Mm -hmm. sure as hell did fight it. Um, You can decide if you want to edit out the curse word. But that, um, but that there was going to be a need to support these historically underfunded institutions, but they would not do it openly. So they called it developing institutions. And I think you can actually see how mainstream this awareness and um, protests to ingra- ingrained inequalities are that we do have the Biden administration and even in some of the, um, in some of the, the rescue packages during the pandemic, pandemic is still going on, you and I know that, even though our institutions don't, um, that um, they're going to set it aside for HPCOs, HSIs, Hispanic Servicing Institutions, and MSIs, Minority serving Institutions, that we're not going to pretend anymore, we're going to set this money aside, they're underfunded, they're helping a, an important population, mm-hmm. and that's really a credit to the activists, and also the researchers who they've really sort of taken yeah. that work
2: from. So in this period after the reauthorization um, and then other changes that come later, um, I mean it really launches like takes off in a whole new way. and on page 252 you say government policies since the 1972 reauthorization has benefited the student loan industry, not the academy. Expert later experts later emphasized that Sally May had turned this sector into a quote gold mine. And at this point, there's something like three thousand student lenders, or something like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, your I think your last substantive chapter is is called "Bankers Lose Their Sweetheart Deal." So, how did bankers lose their sweetheart deal in this in this s- sector that also looks like a real goldmine for the finance sector?
0: Well, I mean, to be honest, it actually and they the the real threat. Is in, starts in the early '90s is direct lending, and it, when we have the published reports. So one, the investigations showing um, the the for profits, um, and this is even before they really make a gold mine online. Um, the investigations yeah. and realizing that how the Johnson administration had done the accounting. For the guaranteed student loan program had hidden how expensive it was. The only thing showing up on mm-hmm. the budget books was the covering of the interest while the student was in school, which does nothing about the accumulation of it. So there's studies shown that the federal government directly lending to students, and it does go through the college or university, right? That will actually be a lot cheaper is what it will be. Mm-hmm. And they're all they're able to do is in the very end of the Bush for the first Bush administration, get a tester program. It's one of the things that Bill Clinton manages to do before um, the Republicans take Congress um, in the 95 election. So taking seats in 96, it's one of the things um, that they're able to do. And but it's just a small program. Right. And only a and the, the bitter fights over it because The student loan industry has a lot of lobbying power, Mm -hmm. is just a certain number of schools limited how much all this stuff. But it becomes really important to the Obama campaign. And this is something that, you know, and I do understand our popular memory of the Obama campaign in 2008 is, of course, about Obamacare, about health care. Um, but mm-hmm. another thing that he brought to the campaign trail was that he and Michelle Obama had just recently paid off their student loans um, and mm-hmm. really making that a, a, a key part. And one of the goals before those midterm elections in 2010 was we're going to not just get health there, but we're going to get the re- end of the guaranteed student loan program and, the, and making the direct student loan program the only thing coming from the federal government. And it is one of a fight for them to actually do it, but they managed to do it. And again, so critical to that was actually the activists and researchers who were building, doing a lot of this work along the time, including to counter the lobbying efforts to stop that. And I think for me is like, the way that I think about this, what I think is so perfect, I hate to use that word, but perfect about the, when Obama signs the Budget Reconciliation Act that enacts Obamacare, and ends the guaranteed student loan program, replaces it. It's the Healthcare and Education Reconciliation Act. They're two together. Calls hmm. it t- the killing two birds. You know, two victories in one week. It's really amazing. Is the fact that if you go back to it in the 1930s, the two things that the New Deals tried, New Dealers tried and failed to do was get healthcare and a higher education guaranteed. That was the hope because Work Study was such a success. It was the hope that that would be included in Social Security, and then. Hmm. The two, some of the two biggest expenses that Americans have, healthcare and medical debt. And you can just see how deeply intertwined they are, the financial products that fund these two really important industries, meds and eds.
2: Hmm. Yeah. So I feel like, um, I feel like there's like a couple counterfactuals or alternatives hanging in the background of the story of like... Uh, you know it could we could have gone other roads I guess uh, and so I mean what what do you think I mean you know this is also an opportunity to talk about what you would what you would prefer to see in the world but I mean what when you think about where where the roads we could have gone down is it direct investment in making college, more affordable? Is that the vision you see?
0: Well, I think the thing is that we do actually have states who did do direct investment to make higher education more affordable. One of them is in California. That being said, I I tell everyone, scholars like you should actually read clark kerr's uses of the university is our debunking um is that mm. if you read it Clark Kerr is very clear that a lot of private money is coming into his multiverses because oh, yeah. there's a lot of private money coming into the UC, in the uc system to expand it even though that legislator is putting a lot of money but the idea was that master plan that three-tier master plan was going to be tuition free but there was that investment so at the state level i also think it's really interesting to think about what would it have been like if they had been able, the the dream was to make work study as permanent as social security was. That's really interesting as well. Um, I think also one Mm -hmm. of those, I'm sorry, just getting chills thinking about it. What would it have meant? And this is a critical part of the great, uh, the GI Bill story that we didn't talk about. The members of the FDR administration, they desperately, desperately want the civilian agencies overseeing things like social security to do the GI bill. Now, one of the practical reasons of this, there's a lot of benefits in the GI bill which they're, you know accustomed to actually doing. Yeah. But the political calculation was if we can get it in a civilian agency, we can someday lift that barrier and make it open to all. And their, mm-hmm. their conservatives in Congress are not fools. They are not fools, and that's why they fight so friggin' hard to put it under the VA and to make sure that the GI Bill is temporary. So it's a little-known fact. We actually have multiple GI Bills. The most generous was the first one. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. another idea of a road not taken. What would it have meant if that idea had been made as permanent? And I I think for me, though, what's hard is that you know when you were talking in the book about this fear of federal control... Is that it's not really in the American imagination to think about that federal investment in higher education, and even one of the most progressive ideas that we have, the College for um, All Act, um, which Jayapal and Sanders put in a lot, or put often are keep you know putting in, is that. Even that is having a tuition-free public option, which is what's happening in New Mexico and to a an certain extent in New York State right now. So it's always looking to see what these folks are experimenting with. Even mm-hmm. that is actually just reaching back to another New Deal innovation, the TVA, which was just to have a public competitor. We're right. going to try the public and, option. Yes, yeah. and deal it's, same with Obamacare. We're just going to reach down. We're going to have this public competitor in the marketplace, So it is, going back to that question that we were talking about, how I, part of this project is for me to try to show how much important finance and market ideas have been a part for a long time in American history, not a post-70s mm-hmm. thing, that that's what it is. And to be honest, with Build Back Better, the origi- original flavor, which included, yeah. Two, yeah. <laughs> that was what was passed, <laughs> um, two free years of community college, what I was mm-hmm. really interested in, see what, what was gonna happen, was if they could get tuition-free tuition, tuition, free, tuition free community college in there, it's interesting mm-hmm. because it's also dealing with that marketplace. If you make those first two-year freeze, what does that do for the price at the private four years and the, pr- and the public four years? What does that do?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And also, because of the way that they did it, it was very similar to the Obamacare where the states would get to choose in terms of having this option, would free community college, because we have it in states like Tennessee, right? right would that right. would that sub, would that p- go over that hurdle that healthcare couldn't back in two thousand eight? And I don't I don't have a good answer for that, but I think it's one of those counterfactuals. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure because a lot of student a lot of the student loan debt is actually held in red states.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you the book came out in late 2021 it came out in august of 2021 okay and so you know the your your epilogue deals with things like strike debt and what it was being written at the time about like the for-profit school problem coming back up in like public attention um and you know how that bears on race and other issues which is really important but i just want to like where you know if you were going to if you were, if you had like we're going to put out a new edition you're going to bring up the epilogue up to now i mean where are we now i feel like the it got like the issue of education and student debt got a lot of attention in the early biden days but you know the way the biden administration's kind of gone i i'm not sure that, you know, it's going to get another push at this point. So I don't know. But, where, but where do you I, think things are at? I
0: hear you. But I think what's interesting is the only thing that remember uh, remains of those pandemic um, things, which like thinking about back to the New Deal and the GI Bill, like what actually might survive the New Deal. It's just the moratorium. The only thing that has actually survived from those pandemic relief programs is the moratorium. Now, yeah. part of that is that from what I am hearing from the student loan industry, because um, I have friends who used to work in it, is that um, they? some of the servicers doing PSLF, the me, the, the servicers doing PSLF has just gotten out. Other service, servicers are also leaving as well. And this is, by the way, this is what happens when you end the direct loan program, or excuse me, the guaranteed student loan right. program, end the guaranteed student loan program, and those, those that are big enough end up servicing the debt for the federal government um and still hanging in there um so uh so you'll you see them actually leaving and but the other thing too is the education department which has done has a lot on on its plate and the biden administration in general has too They haven't done the work to prepare people to start paying again. The last time I talked to someone in the education department, because they read the book, too. I was very honored that they read the book. And they they talked to me about what ideas I had. So they let me know about the PSLF changes that were coming down the pike Mm -hmm. um, was they had plans to inform borrowers about, you know, restarting and all this stuff and we have not seen that so I'm pretty sure I mean don't get me yeah. I right, don't don't I mean you can't quote me on this but I'm pretty sure we'll probably have another moratorium that they haven't done the work they haven't transferred my loan Interesting. so I, I mean they so but that's the only thing that remains but I think it goes something that even if it's true that we get that $10,000 in cancellation it's going to be what the book shows it's only for a few but never enough yeah. And and that's yeah, yeah, just yeah. that's just the thing that runs through it and I think that's what I would say but I would also want to again lift up the people who kept this on the 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 administration's agenda and it has really been inspiring you know people coming out you know the thing is what was so hard about this book everyone has this idea that this data is recent but that's because everyone was sharing their pain privately to their to their lawmakers to their elected representatives which, as I like to point out, throughout yeah. the book, the Nixon administration just called Grief Mail. So in the midst of 70s stagflation, right, right, right. that is what he thinks.
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> People right. who can't afford now to we educate have Twitter. their children.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet.
2: Yeah, well, Twitter, you know, Twitter's good for some things, including yeah. aggregating grief. So, yes, it is yeah. true. Um, yeah, I thought... Um. I mean, I, I, I've been following I- issues around, um, you know, we there's we might be heading into a recession. It's very uncertain at this point because the numbers are so wacky. Um, and I've been looking with friends at, like, people taking on more debt. It looks like people are taking more credit card debt on and things as things tighten up a little bit in the economy. And, you know, something I was thinking about while while I was chatting with you is, so far, we have not had a lot of the, the um, people not paying their credit card bills and stuff. That hasn't been a thing. People are paying their bills. All right. right. We're not seeing a lot of issues around that. Same with mortgages. We haven't seen a lot of people stop paying their mortgage. But I mean, one issue I think is that we do have this moratorium going on. You know? Yeah. And so people are not paying two to however many dollars a month, you know, two hundred to however many dollars a month on on average. So that kicks back in. I don't know. It it could be a kind of an ugly moment for that to for that to come back online potentially.
0: Absolutely. And you're I mean and also I mean (laughs) you're worried about people like buying too much, you know, if you have an eight hundred dollar student loan debt and that's yeah you're not yeah and then we can also talk about like what might be happening on the housing market either for rentals or for yeah um, ownership for sure yeah, yeah. and I, I mean i think especially too is that you know what i think when we have the ideas about how much how many people are expressing that the reason they move back home the reason that they're not buying houses the reason that is that they have this student loan debt by the way just to yeah. plug in i'm still like coming off the emotional roller coaster that was emily the criminal Who was, do you know about this new movie? No. Oh, um, Emily the Criminal. And one of the reasons she turns to crime is because she has a $70,000 student loan. And she can't keep up with the interest payments. Hmm so and, it, and it's I thought when people were telling me to go to what I thought about it I initially thought it was like what is it like a throwaway because you'll get those like throwaway lines in literature and stuff yeah like that. yeah yeah no 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 this yeah. is a full-blown they are talking about her entire journey about why oh. she has all this debt and didn't even wasn't able to actually finish her degree and part of it was that she had to go she had to drop out of school care of a family mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah it's a much more complicated space
2: so are you returning to the business of higher education? Is that what's next for you? Yes, I will you?
0: finish that book. I'm going to finish the business of education book. And I'm. To, it's the campus story. And it, so it looks at um, how we get to these sort of state systems of higher education with these flagship uh, institutions on it. And again, spoiler, they all have these incredible... Public private origins, and a lot, of, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of always been a lot of business investment because they never got the funding that they needed, including the UC campus that I did or I'm, I'm working mm-hmm. on, in order to actually make it tuition free and to just depend on it. So, the whole idea, and it gives I'm hoping it gives us a different geography, understanding that we've had many uses of the university long before Clark Kerr laid them out for the post industrial world, but actually, that it has been a part of it that nice. these institutions have been built into the very fabric. You know of american life um
2: yeah. i think it sounds like a lot of fun and it's going to do a lot of debunking in the classic shimmer style that I, I appreciate so much
0: <laughs> i appreciate well, actually the one i was going to tell you is like i don't know if i ever told you my favorite debunking thing because the sunbelt book did it too and one was like i know you guys are really focused on these like southern democrats becoming republicans but did you ever notice that there's like a lot of western democrats who become republicans like Like Mm. Goldwater family and stuff like that. (laughs) But my favorite one is like one of my our and our our mutual friend Shane Hamilton. Honestly, he's like, yeah, you should just do a separate story about that. There's this little section in the Sunbelt book, which was like, the Sunbelt wasn't air conditioned. Mm. Just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) The factories that they built for the light electronics were Mm. the wealthy people like the Goldwater family, they had air conditioning the rest of it not so much you know until like yeah. the 90s I mean my grandparents didn't have air conditioning either so yeah I actually did the census count on like the air conditioning <laughs> all
2: this nice yes nice I try well Ellie thanks so much time for taking the time to talk to me today this is a lot of absolutely.
0: fun absolutely it was fun it was a good reunion we haven't seen each other in a while
2: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I wanna thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I wanna thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.